Romans chapter 8. We will read our text in a bit, but I ask that you keep it, your Bibles open uh, to Romans 8 uh, to the end of the sermon. We'll come back to it later. We've been looking at the doctrine of creation. And so far in the last two weeks, we have looked at the pathologies, if you wish, the problems that have arisen because we have a weakened doctrine of creation. We see this in the church, in the academy, and in society. As we've seen, as a result of the neglect of the doctrine of creation in the church, we've had Gnosticism arise, that is, a belief that matter is evil, only spirit is good. Most of us, I think, would reject that, but then there's this whole disembodied uh, view in which... uh, Some have called it a low-grade infection of Gnosticism. The church has failed to have a doctrine of the body. And then there's been a truncated view of salvation. I can remember a particular pastor who would always, when he would make a call for people to accept Christ, he would say that that Jesus came to provide the salvation of your soul. Well, what about the rest of me? and this is many ways, I think, tied in with Gnosticism, but it's because we have a faulty view, a weak view of creation. And as we saw last week, we have failed to see the church as culture. The church should not simply look to the culture to see what it is to, it is supposed to do. The way we view creation, the way we use creation, whether it be in architecture and music and painting and food, uh, money, books, water, whatever. These reflect our convictions of, about creation. If, in fact, we think creation is not that important and not that significant, then I think we will misuse it, we will abuse it. We will not have, I think, a proper Christian culture based on God's creation. In the academy, in the university, we see that wisdom has been abandoned in favor of technique or technique. Wisdom is the way to know how to make our way in the world of creation. We see this in scripture. But technique, on the other hand, involves solving all problems by breaking it down into its components or into steps. There's a fundamental belief that the human mind can comprehend just about everything if we just make it manageable. And so God is denied or seen as absolutely unnecessary. And then in the academy, we also have the view of non-participatory knowledge. That is, I know something and that's the thing I know. There isn't really a connection between us. There doesn't need to be. But in scripture, knowledge always involves a connection. But again, if, if in fact we have a weak view of creation, of the doctrine of creation, then we will not feel a need to be connected to anything in creation that we know. We simply stand apart and say, this is what I know about this. In society, we see that Creation has no purpose, no teleology. See, if we believe that God created the world, then in fact, creation must have a purpose. There must be a reason why God created it. But if we get weak on that, if we well, go beyond weak and deny that God created the world, then what purpose does the world have? What purpose does creation have? And so the focus is not on the purpose of creation, but the causes, the sort of cause and effect within the cosmos. And then we see, we saw this last week, that we begin to speak of nature rather than creation. And this is perhaps one of the most damaging aspects of losing a sense of purpose. Um, It's not just a matter of vocabulary, I'm convinced. 
that if we speak about nature rather than creation, we turn away from the conviction that the world can only be understood and explained in light of who God is and what he has done through Jesus Christ. We'll come back to that later. Um, if, in fact, we speak of nature, then we, I think, without even realizing it, are saying that the world is self-explanatory. That we can do science experiments, we can observe things, we don't need God to be part of the equation, we can handle this on our own. Thank you very much. The shift from creation to nature involves the assumption that this is all that ever has been or ever will be. It's a closed system. Every cause has its effect. Um, Every effect has its cause. And then we saw that human beings are seen as products. As a result of seeing creation as nature rather than creation, um, in creation we are creatures, we are made in the image of the creator, but when we lose that sense of creation, then in fact we simply become products. Um, Our identity, uh, who we are, our meaning, everything does not come from God. It must come from something else. We're a product. Whether it be our genetic code or it it be our environment, we simply are seen as products. And then lastly, we saw how that it affects or is affected um, in the area of business. Most of us are not in business, but we are consumers. What I would stress here is that in the world today, in the modern world, the dominant view is that of scarcity, supply and demand. And so what you, if you have scarce commodities, then the price will go up. And so in the modern world, we tend not to think in terms of abundance, but in terms of scarcity. How are we to respond to this? Well, in the last two weeks, we've seen at least three things. First of all, gratitude. If we begin with the assumption, with the belief, the conviction that we are creatures made in the image of the Creator, then we are contingent and we are in fact dependent. And we should be grateful for what God has done for us and given to us. Our disposition should be that of gratitude. The second thing is we should think in terms of abundance rather than scarcity. Again, for modern people, and we are modern people, this doesn't sound right. Aren't we running out of things? Aren't we running out of natural resources? Um, Why would you speak of abundance? Shouldn't you speak in terms of scarcity instead? Well, we believe as Christians that creation has fallen, but that's not the final word. The Christian view is that creation is rooted in the life of God. It is sustained by God. Creation is finite. Creation is dependent. God is not. God is infinite. And his grace, his love, are super abundant. The third thing, which leads us to what we were going to look at today, is we need to think in terms of creation and redemption. We need to see the two of them together. It's what I'd like us to consider today. Follow along, if you would, as I read our text. It's here in Romans 8. It begins in verse number 18. We'll go to verse number 25. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. 
For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. For the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So I mentioned a book that I found very helpful in going through this series is written by Jonathan Wilson, God's Good Earth. And he says, God's Good World, one of the gravest errors we can make in our witness to the good news of Jesus Christ is to separate creation and redemption from each other. We've seen this already, but we'll see it more today. It is not uncommon for Christians today to want to speak about the good news of Jesus Christ, but not want to speak about creation. We don't need to talk about that. Uh, that, that will sort of that will distract us from the really important issue, and that is you need to get saved. But what about creation? When we cut the connection between creation and redemption, in essence, we lose them both. In some sense, we still have them, but they are much diminished because it is only as they are seen together that we see, as Jesus intended, the good news of the gospel. We should not, however, imagine that to recover and reclaim the doctrine of creation, that's what we're trying to do in this series, is that we can do it apart from redemption. As much as to say, uh, Damon's going to preach a series on creation, and then later on he's going to preach a series on redemption. Uh, the first series, we're going to try to reclaim the doctrine of creation, and the second one, reclaim the doctrine of redemption. I suppose that is possible, but in reality, they must be seen together, and they should not be separated. When we recover the doctrine of creation, we must do so in the person of Jesus Christ. One of the mistakes that many people make today as they seek to deal with the pressing issues, the destruction of the earth, for example, what it means to be human, the use of technology, and so much more, is the belief that we can address these, that non-Christians can address these issues without a healthy doctrine of creation that is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. When we either intentionally or unintentionally separate creation and redemption, then our understanding of the gospel, our living out of the gospel, our witness to the gospel becomes weakened and I would even say corrupt. It is a corrupted gospel. Uh, in many ways, without being flippant, it's no longer the good news, it's sort of the so-so news. Because, in fact, when we separate them, we have lost what God intended for us to see. Unfortunately, in the last two or three hundred years, these two doctrines have, in fact, been separated. And so much so that we now believe that this is the way it's supposed to be. That this is the common view um, of, of how things... That we should, in fact, we can look at creation on its own, we can look at redemption on its own, and, and that, that's a, not a problem. And we're so used to that. I must say that I am, that even as I prepare and, and argue that we must put the two together 
there's a part of me that says, no, you, you, you can keep them uh, quite separate, thank you. And I'm convinced that that's simply not true. Before going any further, I would remind you of something we've seen in uh, sermons in the past, that there's a paradigm that we should use as we study scripture of creation, fall, redemption. As we have seen, many people fail to start with creation. They start with fall. They assume that this is the way God made the world, and then they go on to redemption. And when they do this, they fail to understand that God, in fact, had a purpose in creation. This is the way creation was supposed to be, which means when we talk about redemption, I don't get to make up what redemption looks like. You know, it's not as though I've been handed a messed up world, and then I have to decide, okay, this is how it's going to look when it's better, when it's redeemed. No, this is how God made the world. God is going to redeem the world into something even better than this, but here is the pattern. This is what God intended. But if I ignore this, if I start here with a messed up world, then I think in many ways uh, I get to decide everything. I get to decide what is messed up and how it needs to be corrected. And then redemption simply becomes a truncated salvation. Um, I get saved and then when I die I get to go to heaven. And um, not quite sure what I'll be doing there. Um, Might not be the most exciting thing, but I get to go to heaven. Rather than seeing God as seeking to redeem all of creation. In this series, it is my hope that we will recover a healthy doctrine of creation, but that we will not do so disconnected from a healthy doctrine of redemption. So we need to understand today, we need to agree that the two cannot be separated, but neither should they be confused. I am convinced, particularly in preparing for this series, that if you are weak in one, you will be weak in the other without even realizing it. So that I think if you do not see God's power in creation and God's purpose in creation, then when it comes to the matter of God's grace and salvation, yeah, we'll still use the word grace, but in some ways it becomes weaker than what it was. And we think, well, I wasn't that bad. And so God sort of helped me out. He sort of gave me a little boost into the kingdom rather than in the beginning... You know, God said, let there be light. God, in his power, created the world. And God, in his grace, in his power, saves us from sin. If you are weak in creation, I think, without realizing it, you will be weak in redemption when it comes to the matter of salvation. I think we will have a diminished vision of the love of God and the grace of God as seen in his saving us. So, How do we, in fact, relate creation and redemption to each other? How are we to affirm that these two belong together? Um, Let me suggest some things. First of all, we are to see them as components of life. One of the attributes of God, and remember that God is triune, God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. One of the attributes of God is life. God is life. It's not some clever play on words when Moses asked God, who should I say sent me? And God said, I am who I am. God, who is life, gives life to that which is not God. That is, he gives life to creation through the work of creation and redemption. We see this, we hear this time and time again in the Gospel of John. In the first chapter of John, creation and redemption come together in that the word 
the word that is going to redeem us is made flesh. In him was life, we read in 1.4. John 6.63, I am the bread of life. John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. Verse, uh, verse 6 of chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If we listen to these carefully, if somehow we can sort of step away from the prevailing view for the last two or three centuries in which these are separated, if we listen carefully, we will see that creation and redemption come together in the person of Jesus Christ. By the way, of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John is more carefully grounded in creation. In fact, consider how John begins. It's very much an echoing of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. At the same time, John strongly, strongly declares redemption. Um, I think in more... explicit terms perhaps than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So much so that many modern theologians have a real problem with the Gospel of John. Uh, They feel like it's uh, second century, that this is already someone who's already begun to play with the message of Jesus. Not at all. Rooted in creation, he is very explicit about redemption in Jesus Christ. Let me read to you again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. What we should come to see is that creation and redemption are two aspects of one reality. We hear this throughout the New Testament. Well, it's there. I don't know that we hear it. Um, But we should. The opening of Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. There's the creation. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He is the one who made the universe, he sustains the universe, and he has provided redemption. He has provided purification for sins. So that's the first thing that we should do. We should see them as components of life. The second thing is, our vision needs to be directed toward the new creation. Um, We have seen that when the doctrine of creation is neglected, one of the things that is lost is a sense of purpose. Where is this all going? Well, if you read scripture, it's all going to the new creation. Well, if you have something that's new, then you must, in fact, have something that's old. And that which is old is not of of no value, double negative. It has value. But in fact, there is something better that is coming along. Creation does not lack purpose. It has a a telos. It's going somewhere. And so does redemption. They have the same purpose. The new creation. What God is preparing for his people. Jonathan Wilson in his book says, "We We may say simply that God works creation and redemption for this. The new creation. 
So it is not as though when God did creation, it's like, okay, this is what you're supposed to do. This is your telos, your purpose. And redemption, this is your purpose. No, they have the same purpose. They're going in the same direction. And that is a new creation. And the good news in Jesus Christ is that it is through Jesus Christ that God is doing this. His work of creating and redeeming. Um, I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 1. You might want to turn there. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 10. And listen to how Paul writes. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace, that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. You see, you read the first part of this and you're thinking, well, this is very spiritual, very redemptive, this salvific type, you know, salvation language. And then all of a sudden Paul reminds us, by the way, this is all going somewhere, that in heaven and on earth together in creation and redemption, Jesus is bringing everything together toward its fulfillment. Um, When Jesus teaches us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, there is this looking ahead to the new creation when all things will be made right. To put it simply, the new creation is God's eternal purpose. The third thing I think that we need to do is to understand that both stories have integrity. You cannot tell this, they have integrity on their own, but you can't tell one story without the other. You can't tell the story of redemption apart from the story of creation. I mean, why do we need to be redeemed? Oh, things aren't right. Well, where did they go wrong? And, and how do we know that they're wrong? Well, let's go back to the beginning. How did God make things? And then Adam and Eve sinned and things went off track. The same time, that I don't think we have a problem with. I would argue that we cannot tell the story of creation without telling the story of redemption. I've mentioned before, uh, earlier, the paradigm, creation, fall, redemption. But by this, I do not mean that they are separate acts of the Bible. Like, okay, act one, creation. Act two, the fall. Act three, redemption and the consummation. They are, in fact, one story. And the story is God's purpose in creation. The story of creation is found in the book of Genesis. But as Wilson points out, and Tom and I have talked about this, I I think it's amazing, he points out something. As far as we know, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. That's what we are told. The Torah. But let's look at Genesis, because that's the one that tells the story of creation. When did Moses write this down? When did he write down Genesis and then Exodus? But again, we're looking at Genesis. It was after the Exodus. 
after God had brought his people out of slavery into freedom. And the Exodus is the redemptive act par excellence in the Old Testament. (coughs) So it is in the context of redemption that God now tells Moses, okay, now write the story of creation. In the context of them being liberated from their enslavement, now they are in covenant with God that God says to Moses, write down the story of creation. That's where Israel learned that God is not only I am who I am, but God is the creator. How did Israel know that this was the case? After all, nobody was there back when the world was created. None of them had experienced creation as described in the first two chapters. That is the Garden of Eden. They only knew a messed up world. They had been slaves for 400 years. They did not know creation as paradise. So how did they know? How did they come to believe, in fact, that the world that they lived in was God's creation? That God who is worthy of praise, had in fact created an orderly, life-giving, gracious gift that we call creation. How did they know this? Because they had just experienced being redeemed. And because they had experienced redemption, it's not a stretch for them to see God as the one who created the world. Again, I, I think Wilson shows great insight here to point out that Moses doesn't write down the story of creation until Israel has been redeemed. And so they're not two separate stories. They are, in a sense, two separate stories, but they come together. They are two sides of the same coin. This is God's purpose in creation. We can only recognize the world as creation because of God's redemption, God's redemptive work. As Christians, we freely admit that the world is not the way it should be. But neither is it the way things have always been or the way that things will always be. The world is a place of suffering and of pain. But we also confess that it's not the way that it... Let me start over. The world has not always been as it presently is and will not always be so. This is rooted in the, the belief that God is redeeming the world. He's changing the world. This should change everything about how we live in God's world. Think a moment. If, in fact, we believe that the world is as it always has been and always will be, then how, do, how, do we, how will that affect the way that we live in the world? If we think that this is it, and this, it's always been this way and it will always be this way, then, then how would we live in the world? Would we accept the conflicts, accept struggles, death, disease, destruction, try to make the best of it? On the other hand, if we in fact believe that in Jesus Christ the creation is being redeemed, yes, it's messed up, it's broken, but it is being redeemed by Jesus Christ, then in fact we will not live with a sort of fatalism that, well, this is just the way it is, but we would, or we should, live with faith and trust and expectation and joy that God in fact is redeeming his creation. And that one day, we probably won't live to see it, but one day that work will be completed. We will see it on the day of resurrection when we are brought into the presence of God. So as Christians, we begin to confess 
and live out our convictions about creation when we learn that it is creation only through God's redemptive work. Okay. On the other hand, if we fail to connect the two, then creation simply becomes an unreal world. It becomes an unreality. It becomes a world without meaning. Stop and think a minute. What happens if, in fact, we separate the two stories? The story of creation, the story of redemption. Uh, then creation becomes a realm independent of redemption. And it has its own laws, if you wish. Um, which you may discover quite apart from, from Christ. We believe that God created the world through Jesus Christ, but if you believe that they are separate, then in fact, yeah, Jesus will save me, but the rest, I'll, I'll go to science class to learn what's going on in the world. Wait a minute, isn't that in fact what science has done? Modern science has sought to separate creation, to study creation, quite independent of redemption, because... I mean, let's face it, they've rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. Many have rejected God altogether. So let, why would you even talk about redemption? So let's just talk about, well, now it becomes nature. Let's talk about nature. But modern science, particularly in the West, only came into being because there was, in fact, the conviction that God was a dependable ruler, that there were, in fact, laws of nature, if you wish, that God was consistent in the way he sustained the world. God was not the same as creation, so you could, in fact, experiment, you could observe, and you weren't, this isn't God, but you're looking at God's creation. At the same time, modern science, and I think many people don't realize, works within a very limited horizon. Oftentimes it's one cause and one effect failing to recognize that you may in fact have one cause and ten effects, nine of which you have ignored because you weren't looking for them, you were looking for that one specific uh, aspect, that effect, as a result of your experiment. The assumption of modern science is that the world is today as it has always been and will always be. Now, there are Christians who try to refute this and they say, listen, you modern scientists, you've got this all wrong because you have sort of a uniformitarian view of reality. That you think that, you know, like carbon-14 works on certain assumptions that, in fact, the, the rate of degradation is the same, is consistent throughout, and you guys are wrong. Uh, that's not the way things are. Unfortunately, I think Christians who argue this way have, in fact, jumped over the net and are still, in, they're on the side because of the people they're arguing against, because they're looking at the world as purely material. The Christian doctrine of creation and redemption asserts a more fundamental challenge to modern science. It is not that modern science cannot judge or determine accurately uh, geological ages. That we would say to them, no, you've got it wrong because you, in fact, have this this, this false assumption of the uniformity of processes. No. Again, many Christians would say what we need to do, modern science has taken God out of the laboratory, we need to bring God back into the laboratory, back into the process. No. The Christian doctrine of creation asserts that in fact there is a completely different process that is going on in creation. 
That is redemption. See, and this this is this is where we've messed up over the last 300 years because, in fact, we have separated creation from redemption and our view of creation has gotten weaker and weaker and weaker because we feel like we can't stand up to science, you know, modern science. And so, if anything, in trying to refute modern science, we try to use their weapons and what we've done is we have disconnected creation from redemption. We... Do we or do we not believe that God is currently in the process of redeeming the world? And if he is, then is that that's probably something that cannot be measured. We can see it perhaps and observe it, but somehow I think Christian science, those who are Christians who are trying to argue against science, are using the weapons of science instead of connecting redemption and creation as God intended and to see that redemption is in fact at work. We can know many things about visible and invisible phenomena. But if reconciliation is absence from our understanding of the world, then our knowledge, our confession, our living in the world will in fact fall short of what God intends. This isn't simply a problem of science. This is also a problem of theology. In the last 500 years, perhaps even longer, the church has, has begun to maintain that there are sort of, if you wish, two orders. There is the order of creation and there is the order of redemption. Um, and it's simply wrong. It's simply wrong. The two must be seen together. But in seeing them as separate, it's led to an unhealthy gospel, a pale, a pale reflection of what God intended in the good news of Jesus Christ. So salvation now becomes an operation rescue, where we're saving people from the fires of hell so that they can go to heaven. And we don't even think about the whole person, let alone all of the creation. We're just thinking, get them saved so they get into heaven, they don't go to hell, and that end of story. And that is a part of the gospel without question, but it is only a part of the gospel. One of the things that this does, by the way, this view, is it begins to see the world, well, it begins to see uh, redemption as theater. That this is God's working in human history and creation is the stage. So if you wish, God is going to save the world. Jesus comes out on the stage and he, he lives here. He dies. He's buried. He's resurrected. He goes back to heaven. And in a sense, there's this giant altar call. Everyone should come in and be saved. And then at the end of time, break down the stage, break down the, the, the scenery because we're going to heaven. Rather than seeing that, in fact, the purpose of redemption involves creation as well. Um, creation is seen only as a tool and how sad is that in Revelation 21 5 we read he who who was seated on the throne said I am making everything new then he said write this down for these words are trustworthy and true what we find in the book of Revelation is that the new creation is not identical with the old creation but there is a continuity between the two. 
So we are told in Revelation 21 that there is no sorrow, no death, no evil. There is no sea. There are no celestial sources of light because God will be the light. But there is a city, a river, a garden, and perhaps most tellingly, there is a tree of life. And, and when was the last time we heard about the tree of life? Oh yeah, it was back in Eden. It was back in the story of creation. Now granted, when you get to Revelation, some of the language is straightforward and much of it is imaginative. But I think taken imaginatively or literally, it in fact portrays, it conveys the glory of the new creation in terms of life that is in continuity with the past, the old creation and the new creation. Stop and think a minute. What happens to us after we die? By the way, this is one of the questions I asked in my first lecture. Um, what happens after you die? And my students this year said, you get buried. And I'm like, okay, okay, fine. But what happens to you after you die? As Christians, we believe in the resurrection. And you know what that means? That this is important. Now, this is not perfect. One could have a lot of complaints about this. But in fact, the new body that I will have in the new creation is connected to this body. As much as to say, no body here, no body there. There is a continuity between what God has done here and what he will do in the new creation. Unfortunately, as creation has been diminished over the last 300 years, so has the doctrine of resurrection. So now they are, there are those in the church that we would call liberal who say that, I, well, that Jesus wasn't really resurrected. What happened was the disciples were up in Galilee. They didn't know Jesus had died and they kept preaching with power and therefore people say, well, his spirit has been resurrected because people were so full of courage. Some people speak of resurrection as renewal. Um, go back to our text, by the way, in Romans 8, verses 22 and 23. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. I think of the women in our congregation, and Jesse most recently, who went through the pains of childbirth. This is what creation is experiencing. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. I dare say, I dare say that a large percentage of Christians today, even evangelical Christians, if you were to say to them, God sent His Son the Lord Jesus, to die for the redemption of your body, they would disagree with you. No, Jesus came to save me, my soul, the eternal part of me. No, that is true, but that's only part of the story. He came to redeem our bodies as well. As in the incarnation, God in the flesh, we in fact see so powerfully, most powerfully, creation and redemption together as a part of the same story. I hope it's been clear that we cannot recognize and we cannot describe accurately the creation apart from God's work of redemption. 
sadly, we have often, if not more often than not, misspoken the gospel, misstated the gospel, as we've spoken about creation. One way that we do this is to speak of creation as a collection of things rather than the continuing work of God. See, if in fact I were to ask you, where do you find the creation story, we'd all want to run to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. But God is still creating today. God has not stopped. And sadly, we have sort of said, well, that's Old Testament stuff, that's Genesis 1 and 2 stuff. But in fact, God is still in the process. God is creating and God is sustaining his creation God keeps this world in existence and he is working for its redemption. There is no creation apart from the redemptive work of God. This work, this world is real. It's not unreal. It's not an illusion. It's not a passing phase. It's not a temporary set that they're going to break down. You know, once, once we all get saved and go to heaven, then that's it. Fold it up. That's it. The world is broken. We recognize that. It is wounded. It has fallen. It is sinful, it is suffering, it is rebellious. This world is, by God's gracious rule, creation, his creation. It is the stuff of redemption. And we hear this in our text today, in Romans chapter 8. In closing, I want to finish reading chapter 8 of Romans. And I want to do so because in part... I think there's some verses here that we would like to use and others that we would not. Because some of them speak of spiritual matters like prayer and the Spirit and things like that. But then it also mentions creation stuff. And for some of us, at least, this might be a bit puzzling. So, beginning at verse 26. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness... We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. He who searches, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers." Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep for slaughter. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced 
that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. To understand redemption, we must understand creation. And to understand creation, we must understand redemption and not see them as two separate things, but as two things that come together in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we have, in fact, shortchanged the good news. We have made it manageable, broken it down to where it deals with what happens to us after we die. That it doesn't inform all of our thinking. We can go out and witness to people and lead them to faith in you, or so we imagine. But we have done so at the expense of creation. We have failed to understand that creation and redemption go together. And they have the same purpose. They're going in the same direction. And that is the new creation. In many ways we are schizophrenic. That there is a spiritual part of our existence. We imagine our spiritual lives. And then there's the real world. But even as we have gathered here today, we have listened as your word has been read. We have confessed our sins aloud. We have sung with our voices. We have eaten, had something to drink. We are physically present in this place. So there is a connection. There must be a connection between creation and redemption. For many of us, this, is, this flies in the face of what we've been taught. We've had a very utilitarian view of creation. Or a very modern scientific view of things. I pray that by your spirit we would be able to think on these things. And begin to see things as they truly are. Pray for those that aren't with us today that you would watch over them and keep them safe for Gia as she travels, uh, for James and Laura as they come back from San Diego, and for Mary as she goes to sea. For each one, and for each one of us as we go through this world this week, may we have a real sense of your presence. May we have a real sense that this is your creation that you are redeeming. As we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.